This morning, we are in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 to 28. It's the Sabbath in Capernaum, and Jesus is on his way to the synagogue, as are many Jews in Capernaum. Just as Christians heading to church on a typical Sunday morning, Jews head to the synagogue on a Saturday, and they were tired from a busy week. Now, some were excited to go to synagogue, while others, they were in a little more irritable mood. And who really knows why? Maybe because they struggled to get the kids out the door and buckled up onto the donkey for the trip to the synagogue. Maybe the strap on their sandal broke all the way on the way to church, and they had to go all the way back home to replace them, making them late for services again. Well, it doesn't really matter. We just know people had all kinds of emotions heading to synagogue. Upon arriving, the crowd hears that a guest preacher will give the sermon in today's service. And his name? His name is Jesus. He's new to the preaching circuit. In fact, few people really know very much about him. And from the murmurs in the crowd, word is spreading that he was from Nazareth. Now, this caused many to sigh, to sigh and to wonder whose idea was it to invite a hillbilly to preach. And some people began to pack up their stuff to head to the synagogue across town where a preacher with a more prominent preaching pedigree would be speaking. But as Jesus, as Jesus began to speak, he, he taught unlike any teacher the crowd had ever heard. And so people sat back down, mesmerized by Jesus. And what they found fascinating and intriguing was not his style of preaching. It wasn't his joke telling or the interesting stories he told. No, it was deeper than the entertainment value of his words. What captivated people was his authority. The authority with which he spoke. Now, the word for authority in our text in verse 22, it comes from the same root as the word author, meaning out of the original stuff. Jesus taught with original ideas, rather than simply borrowing the ideas from other rabbis, which is what the scribes often did. We could say it this way. When Jesus spoke to the crowd about their lives, Jesus spoke as if he were the author of their lives. Jesus spoke as if he were the author of their lives. Now, the skeptical people who were ready to leave earlier, well, they're now at the, on the edge of their seats. And they're writing on their bulletins, wow, and showing it to their friend next to them. As people sat, waiting for the next insight from Jesus' mouth, his sermon, his sermon was interrupted. It was interrupted by the shrill shriek from the back pew. There were many that day. They recognized it. And when they heard that sound, their blood ran cold. They likely would have recognized the man's appearance, but it was his voice. His voice was not of this world. It was from the realm of darkness. And so the voice squeals, why are you attacking us, Jesus? It can't already be the time for you to destroy us. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Hmm. 
when was the last time that it was good to get the endorsement of a demon? You see, the demons see in Jesus what the teachers of the law were blind to see. Jesus is the Holy One of God. But again, when was the last time a demon's endorsement ever helped a person's reputation, especially a new preacher? And so Jesus sternly commands the evil spirit, be quiet, come out of the man. And with violence, the text says, with violence and shrieking, the evil spirit scrambles to get out of the man. And at that moment, at that moment when the man was set free, the only calm-looking person in the synagogue was the man freed from the demon. Everyone else in the synagogue, they were picking up their jaws off of the floor. Now think about this for a moment. If you witnessed how Jesus defeated the demon, what would you have left the synagogue talking about that day? Probably, you'd be thinking that was the most exciting service the synagogue has had in a really, really long time, right? But that's not what the crowd talked about. Here's what they said. Verse 27 says this, the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching? And with authority? He even gives orders to impure spirits and they obey him. Did you catch it? Most people miss it. The people were amazed by the power in Jesus' words. Just as God commanded with authority, let there be light, and there was light. Jesus, he simply gives a command, be quiet, come out, and his authority drives the demon away. Jesus' words have power. Jesus' words have authority. I wonder... I wonder if some in the synagogue remembered what John the Baptist told them out in the wilderness not too long before this. In Mark chapter 1, verse 7, it says this, After me comes one more powerful than I. Jesus. Jesus is that one. Jesus is the one with God's power in his words. So it raises a question. Church, are we amazed by the power in Jesus' words. As Jesus speaks in Scripture, what are His words causing to happen in our hearts? Transformation in the Christian life is found in the power of Jesus' words. Now, the transformation doesn't have to be shocking like a, a demon flying out of a person. Transformation, it can be as profound and deep as learning what it means to love in Christian community. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 to 13, the Corinthian church has asked Paul another tricky question. This question is about eating food sacrificed to idols. Back in the Greek culture 2,000 years ago, many, many gods were worshipped in Corinth. 
for they were what's called a polytheistic culture, meaning they had many gods. And this raised two issues in the Corinthian church. First, the Corinthian Christians still had family members who worshipped at the pagan temples. Uh, Think grandparents, aunts, uncles, uh, cousins. Now imagine it is a Saturday, and the family tradition is for all the family members to meet at Grandma's house for dinner. So Grandma sends Grandpa to the marketplace to get the pot roast for the dinner. Now most of the meat at the butcher's shop They were portions left over from the animal sacrifices earlier that day in the pagan temples. For Grandma and Grandpa, that's no big deal. See, Grandma and Grandpa are both nominal worshipers of Zeus and Aphrodite, and they've worshipped them all their lives. So Grandpa buys the roast, and he takes it home for Grandma to prepare. Well, you arrive at Grandma and Grandpa's house. And Grandpa is ready for dinner. He greets you. He welcomes you in. Now, unlike the rest of your relatives, you and your family are Christian. So as Grandma dishes up the pot roast, you know it was sacrificed in the pagan temple earlier that day. So what do you do as a follower of Jesus? Is it appropriate to eat grandma's idol meat now that you believe that Jesus is the only true Lord? That's issue one. Is it right to eat food offered to idols? Then there's a second issue. You see, there were some in the church of Corinth who never even thought eating food sacrificed to idols was a big deal. They never even thought about it until one Sunday when a fellow church member came to church and said, Did you hear? Did you hear what the Nelsons did? They were at Grandma's house yesterday, and they ate pot roast sacrificed to Zeus. That's no different than worshiping Zeus. Then there was another group in Corinth. They heard this, and they said, Oh, come on. There's no such thing as Zeus, Hermes, or Aphrodite. So chill out. Offering these foods to these non-existent gods, it means no more than offering up food to a blank wall. Food is food. Jesus is Lord of my heart, and that's all I need to know. So whatever I put in my mouth does not affect what's true in my heart. Well, that didn't sit well with many in the congregation. Which is why the Corinthians asked Paul this question. Again, is it appropriate for disciples of Jesus to eat food offered to idols? Well, as a good pastor, Paul tried to see the issue from all sides. Yes, on the one hand, all those Greek gods really were nothing. And if you know that and accept that, then you're not likely to be spiritually harmed by eating food offered to idols. And if just knowing the right stuff and acting accordingly were the only thing to consider, then that's the end of the conversation. But on the other hand, what if love, what if love is the most important priority in the body of Christ? 
What if instead of rolling our eyes at our fellow Christians who are so easily offended by our eating of idle meat, we just stop eating the idle meat out of love for our fellow believers? Hmm. For Paul, the authority of love is to guide us in church life. Christian love should compel us to consider how our personal behavior will influence the behavior of others. Now, this morning, we hear this and we nod our heads in approval. However, we likely miss the tension of the situation in the text. Let me explain. Listen to Paul's description of the situation in 1 Corinthians 8, 1-3. says this, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Those those who think they know something do not yet know as they ought to know, but whoever loves God is known by God. Now, some members of the church have knowledge. They have a solid theology. And so when they think of the idol meat theologically, they know. They know, according to verse 4, that an idol is nothing at all, and there is no God but one. And that's good theology. But look what good theology can do to those who possess it. Verse 1 says, knowledge puffs them up. It's the idea of being filled with pride. Knowledge blows them up. Knowing idols were not really gods. With pride, these believers ate the food sacrificed to idols because the idol food neither brought them closer to Jesus nor drove them farther away from Jesus. Now watch how good theology can lead to the harming of others. As the knowledgeable believers, what Paul calls the stronger believers, As they eat the idle food, there's another group of believers known as the weaker believers. Now, idols were such a priority in their lives before Christ that it is difficult for them to think in new ways about food offered to idols. But the weaker believers try to follow the example of the stronger believers, and so they eat the idle meat. But when the weaker believers eat it, they still believe they are eating of the idol food that is a pledge of allegiance to the idol. So in their eating of idol meat, they believe they are betraying their loyalty to Jesus. Paul dealt with this same issue in Rome. In Romans chapter 14, verses Uh, 14 to 15, Paul gives the Roman church advice on how the stronger believers to use their knowledge to meet the spiritual needs of the weaker believers. Here's what Paul writes in Romans. I know and I am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, To him it is unclean, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. 
You may never have thought about this, but in the church, it is possible for good theology of a stronger believer to damage the faith of a weaker believer. So Paul's advice to the stronger believer? Well, Paul basically says this, If your freedom in Christ is tripping someone up and negatively affecting their walk with Christ, then knock it off for their sake. Well, in this instance, stop eating idle meat. In fact, Paul is willing to follow his own advice. He says in 1 Corinthians 8.13, If food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. What Paul models is what it looks like to live under the authority of Christian love. Where knowledge puffs up, Paul says love builds up. Just as a house is gradually built up, in love we are to work in building up the Christian character and the faith of others. Here's a way to put it. Christian freedom is not the right to choose to do as we wish. Christian freedom is to be a slave to Christ, where we become responsible for one another. I'm responsible to build you up. You're responsible to build me up. I like how Chuck Swindoll Swindoll illustrates this. He shows us what it looks like. So here's a story. You meet a younger Christian at church. You strike up a friendship, and suddenly you realize this person really looks up to you for your spiritual guidance. You detect right away that this person has not been discipled well. They don't have signs of mature knowledge. Well, you're a well-tuned marathon runner, and your new friend is just getting into jogging. Uh, Paul refers to such a person as a weaker brother in the faith. Do you slow your pace to help this believer develop, or do you pass him off to somebody else more at their level? Uh, Another example, you're a concert pianist. Uh, The girl is in her first year of piano lessons. Do you reduce your tempo and skill level to play duets together, or do you pair her up with a teacher who has patience for beginners? Now let's take this a step further. Let's assume this new believer is a recovering alcoholic, saved out of a 20-year battle with alcohol, and slowly learning how to live a life that doesn't revolve around bars and nightclubs. On the other hand, you come from a family that occasionally enjoyed a glass of wine with a meal, or you use alcohol in cooking. In other words, alcohol has been just a natural part of your world. So what do you do when this new or young believer comes around? Do you cook the same recipes and serve the same alcohol beverages? Or do you surrender your own freedom in Christ for the sake of the weaker believer? Or do you avoid the hassle and not even invite that person into your life? Though Paul is dealing with the issue of idle meat, We have our controversial gray areas that can trip up people not ready to navigate them. Instead of rejecting weaker believers, the authority of love embraces them to build them up. So what? What does Mark 1 and 1 Corinthians 8 have to do with you? 
Here it is in one sentence. Where the authority of Jesus' words and the authority of Christian love reside together, only then is Christian community possible. One more time. Where the authority of Jesus' words and the authority of Christian love reside together, only then is Christian community possible. You see, these texts, they force us to consider two needs that we each have. First, can you name the stronger believer in your life who is building you up in your discipleship to Christ? You need such a person. Such a person is likely older, wiser, more experienced in the faith than you are. And not only do you spend time with them, and much of that time is spent chewing on Jesus' words and and how to live them out. So who is that stronger believer that you're walking with in Christian community? Here's the second thing we've got to struggle, wrestle with. Can you name the weaker believer in your life that you are building up in their discipleship to Christ? You see, Christian community calls us into both relationships. Now, the weaker believer is likely younger, likely younger than you in age, or they could be older than you, but they lack the experience of living the Christian life. They need a more experienced believer to help them conform to Jesus' words as you get together for coffee or a Coke and you talk about the words of Jesus. So let me ask you again, who is the weaker believer that you're, you are walking with? It's something for us to think about. Because remember, where the authority of Jesus' words and the authority of love reside together, Only then is Christian community possible.